Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. And in today's episode, I had a very special guest who I've known since he was a wee lad, and that is Dr. Kevin Akrami, who's serving on the front line in the ICU and is an infectious disease expert serving on behalf of the University of California, San Diego. And he spends about half his time up here in San Diego. And then I guess I could say the majority of his time down in Brazil. Dr. Akrami joined the show right after a shift on the front line in the COVID unit at UCSD Medical Center. We get to know a little bit about Dr. Akrami, but mostly we talk about COVID and his frontline experience, including how one of the painful parts of his role is seeing folks at the end of life without family being close by. But on the brighter side, he talks about the strength of the medical teams and the staff that are powering through and coming together during this time of a common enemy with COVID. Dr. Akrami shares some more pros and cons of his experience with COVID, his life and experience and passion about infectious disease where he's learned about it in North America, where he lived in Africa, and also where he's lived in South America. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on YouTube, pophealthpodcast.com, Apple Music, Spotify, or Stitcher as well. Thanks everybody, enjoy the show. Dr. Akrami, thanks so much for joining us, especially after a 12 hour shift. Thanks for having me, glad to be here. No problem. So we're recording uh, bright and early. Actually, the sun's just coming up. You can see it behind me. So Dr. Akrami just came off a 12-hour shift down at UCSD in the COVID unit, and he's been kind enough to join us. Uh, Dr. Akrami, before we get into discussing healthcare, I want to get to know a little bit about you. So could you share something about yourself that might surprise the audience, something outside of the workplace? Sure. Yeah. So um, I I think... um being in San Diego and in Southern California in general, um, surfing is my outlet. Um, that's where I go to wash my soul in salt water <laughs> in between shifts and otherwise. Um, and living between Brazil and San Diego kind of have a wealth of, of waves to enjoy in both locations. Awesome. And what is your favorite surf spot? Uh, so Swami's in San Diego is uh, one of kind of world-class waves um, in, uh, in uh, California. I think it's probably one of the best waves that's around to surf. So that's got to be up there. Nice, nice. I know we were talking previously, uh, Dr. Crommie mentioned the waves there about four to eight feet. And also uh, there might be some uh, a celebrity every once in a while popping up there, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, that used to be this kind of stomping grounds of a, a growing up Rob Machado, who was kind of a contemporary of Kelly Slater back in the day. And uh, he's been out there a few times when I've gone surfing on one of his custom made wooden board, single plank kind of finless things that he's somehow able to surf. So, yeah, it's a great spot. Um, really good, uh, good vibe of folks there. And um, not really uh, too um, too much of the local vibe that you can sometimes get in surf spots, I think, around Southern California. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, I know with you living in San Diego and Brazil, um, you have plenty of uh, opportunity uh, to find some good waves and, and different hemispheres, which is pretty cool. So uh, for those of you in the audience, I've actually known Dr. Akrami when he was... Uh, 
just a, a little little brother of one of my good friends. And of course, all little brothers are nerdy little brothers. So it's pretty cool to see my friends, you know, quote unquote, nerdy little brother uh, now really being on the front lines of COVID and really leading the charge um, and actually, you know, internationally. So Dr. Akrami, can you share with us briefly? Um, of course, I know where you grew up, but maybe share with the audience where you grew up and how eventually uh, you decided to go into medicine. Sure. So, yeah, I grew up in uh, Arcadia. Um, it's a kind of suburb of Los Angeles. And um, I think ultimately during uh, high school, I kind of developed a really um, a curiosity about how the body works and how it functions and dysfunctions and um, really trying to understand the physiology of that. Um, and that was really kind of the initial curiosity that made me go on to undergrad and study physiology and neuroscience at UCSD and um, was able to channel some of that interest in uh, some volunteer work that I did through the four years I was in San Diego. We established uh, a free healthcare clinic um, for a population in Ensenada um, and recruited physicians to come down and just kind of seeing the work that they were doing and the difference that we were making in the community in that way really motivated me to try to uh, pursue a career in medicine at that time. That is awesome. And I know we were uh, also previously talking before the recording about some good taco spots. What was the name of the taco spot again? Yeah, so there's Jose's Taco Stand that was right uh, two blocks away from the clinic. So it's kind of on this dirt road off a beaten path that we'd he'd be able to, to whip up some delicious tacos for a, a, a gaggle of 20 undergrads and some physicians at that time. So yeah, wow. his, his still, still there actually. Yeah. Oh, nice. So you've been down yeah. there in the, in the recent past. Bye. Yeah. So I actually, when I came back to, to UCSD, I, I went down as one of the volunteer physicians. And so it ended up being this really cool kind of full circle experience 15 years after graduating to then go down and see the undergraduates kind of continuing the the work that we'd started um all the way back in you know 2001 that is that is awesome like some great memories obviously and um it's great that you're still serving dr Akrami. so ucsd was where your undergrad is and it's cool it's uh it's neat to see you back there uh your old stomping grounds but after your undergrad you went off uh to do your med school uh tell us about that yeah so i um Ended up going to Albert Einstein uh, College of Medicine in the Bronx. And part of the reason that I uh, was interested in that program specifically at the time, there was a really uh, robust um, social medicine program and dedication to international work and opportunities for medical students to kind of get involved both within the city's own um, system. That's, you know, New York City obviously is this kind of uh, melting pot of the United States, but also to be able to go uh, to other countries. And so in between my first and second year, I was able to do a medical Spanish program um, through, the, through the college. And then um, during my uh, subsequent years, I was actually doing a medical Spanish kind of track within the Bronx. And so got to learn about the Puerto Rican, Colombian, Cuban um, accents, Peruvian, um, and kind of the various ways in which folks kind of refer to different ailments and ultimately ended up going to Uganda for, um, 
uh, three months during my my last year of medical school um, as as one of the kind of like interns on the the medicine wards there in a, a city called Casoro, which is kind of at the interface between um, Uganda, Rwanda, and the Congo, and so when we were there, they had a, you know, about a 10,000 person uh, refugee camp that was a, for uh, folks es- escaping from the Congo due to violence and other things. So really cemented my interest in global health at that time. Yeah, so you've lived in Africa, North America, South America, anywhere else? Um, I think those are the main, main places where I, I'd consider that I've lived, yeah. Nice, awesome. Well, it's great to, to learn more about your background, Dr. Akrami. So you're back at UCSD where you did your undergrad. Um, prior to the outbreak, um, you were also back at UCSD. And what, what type of work were you doing prior to the outbreak? Yeah, so my, my role here... Um, Basically, I, I work as both an infectious disease specialist and an intensive care physician. And so um, most of the patients that we were kind of encountering in either of those capacities, UCSD is a, a partner referral center for advanced cancer and um, robotic surgeries and kind of serves as an um, encatchment area for a lot of San Diego and and. and uh, heading east, even out as far as uh, some parts of Arizona. And so um, th- we were having a lot of patients with complications related to uh, bone marrow transplants and advanced cancers and a lot of um, side effects from different uh, med- medications in the context of clinical trials. And so that was basically the kind of day-to-day um, that we were dealing with, which was very complex. And, um, you know, folks who are ultimately coming here because there were no other options for curing their cancer um, in, in certain circumstances. And so um, emotionally challenging, um, but also, you know, very gratifying when things worked out with our patients. That's great. And so with UCSD, you're actually not, or you were not necessarily working for UCSD all the time. Tell us about this time in San Diego versus time in Brazil? Sure, yeah, so that was the the clinical time. um, And then the rest of my time was really dedicated to developing a a research and educational collaboration between UCSD and colleagues in Brazil. And so I ended up going down there during um, my third year of fellowship through uh, the infectious disease program and ultimately um, was able to establish um, a couple of research projects that we had pilot funding through uh, UCSD to study um, some mosquito-borne illnesses like Zika, um, which we haven't heard about for five years here at least, and um, chikungunya and some other uh, viruses that have been kind of circulating. And so my, my main focus was virology, um, and then specifically about kind of novel ways of diagnosing emerging infections. Um, and uh, so was doing that for the, the past three years before <laughs> coronavirus uh, emerged. So did you meet, uh, I know your wife is from Brazil, or at least speaks, speaks Portuguese. Uh, did you meet yeah. her? So she, she and I um, 
had met while I was working in Mozambique um, ah. through a medical education um, initiative that we had through the university and the medical school in Maputo, Mozambique. And so um, when everybody asks us where we've met, <laughs> that, that ends up being nobody's answer because <laughs> an American and Brazilian meeting in Mozambique is like not, not something that anyone imagines. Yeah, no, that's funny. My wife's mom is 100% Chinese, but she lived in Mozambique. And her, oh, wow. her husband is 100% Cuban and he lived in Mozambique. I'm sorry. Yeah. So long story short, when, you know, yeah, it's so it's your story is definitely unique, but I guess Mozambique brings together people from different cultures, surprisingly. Yes. (laughs) Um, So how has COVID, before we get into what you're doing during the pandemic, you mentioned what you're doing prior to COVID, how has COVID changed your life and your schedule? So uh, while in Brazil, my, my kind of day-to-day schedule would be going to the hospital to round in the ICU with the medical students and residents um, a couple times a week. And then uh, the rest of the time was essentially spent uh, working with the um, medical students and researchers at the um, Research Institute to basically work through both the kind of basic science aspect to the research. So designing new assays and testing new assays for diagnosing and distinguishing Zika from dengue, um, and then uh, doing some teaching on the side as well with the medical students um, at the federal university. And so that was basically kind of the structure that I had um, up until uh, March of of this year. So March hits, and then what happens? So March, uh, I... Basically, uh, with some of the colleagues at the Infectious Disease Hospital in Brazil and in Salvador specifically, where I live, um, they uh, were starting to receive patients with coronavirus infection and actually were in the process of converting uh, the uh, medicine wards into an ICU. And uh, so because I'd been working with them on... uh, research projects um, offered to help. I I was able to get my medical license in Brazil and so offered to um, help set up the intensive care unit um, for the medicine wards and so kind of transition. And at that point, basically stopped all my research, all the teaching and was 100% um, kind of clinically uh, involved in, in taking care of patients and and really trying to um, train the staff, uh, train, you know, nursing, respiratory therapist, and um, the the other physicians who would be, who didn't have intensive care expertise in terms of the things that we would um, need to do in order to save uh, these people's lives. And so um, basically uh, the day-to-day workload um, ended up being much different. I think, you know, I ended up being on, on service uh, with four days off a month um, and uh, continued that through, uh, through June. Um, and so we basically went from a, you know, closed un- unit with closed doors where you can't monitor um, 
rationing out uh, protective equipment, um, personal protective equipment, and developing different protocols. I was actually able to also incorporate a little bit of research into that in that we, our hospital was one of the sites for the WHO's solidarity trial, um, which was kind of this rapidly um, uh, deployed study looking at which medications may make a difference in uh, those patients hospitalized with COVID infection. So even in the midst of kind of COVID, I was still able to uh, work with uh, the researchers and see ways in which we can enroll patients, try to do the study in the best way possible, um, recognizing that kind of clinical care came first, but we would try to do the best we could in terms of uh, carrying out the study and ultimately we, the, the results from that study just got published, I think a month ago, um, looking at kind of the benefits of the different treatments available. Where can people find uh, that study? Yeah, so it was um, published uh, probably PubMed, if you just type in solidarity study, um, WHO, um, it'll take you both to the WHO site and then that also has a link to the publication and then the study design and any other publications associated with the, the study. Okay, great. So that was through June. Um, now, now you're in San Diego where we're recording today. How did you make your way back up uh, to San Diego and serve on the front line there? So uh, I, initially my, my schedule uh, basically is coming back uh, twice a year to kind of fulfill my clinical responsibilities here at UCSD. And so uh, when I came back, um, basically was uh, set up to do my month of July uh, in the ICU, and that just happened to coincide with uh, one of the peaks of cases in San Diego. And so um, in addition to that, I'd been doing telemedicine through the university with one of our um, hospitals that's um, on the border, um, and so kind of had a unique experience in that I had this very intense resource limited um, experience to a certain extent. It was mostly the capacity of the, the folks on the ground. So in Brazil, the nurses that we transitioned from medicine wards to ICU nurses within a week was the most challenging. We never ran out of ventilators. We never ran out of pumps. There were medication shortages, but we made um, adjustments. And so I didn't see um, that same level at El Centro and certainly didn't see that in at UCSD. But I think, um, you know, it's interesting looking back on that time, I think now we're approaching, so I'm, I've continued to do telemedicine with this hospital through UCSD and I've seen that they've had to change their nurse to patient ratios and they're, if things continue the way they have, I think very soon we're going to have to start relying on non-intensive care trained nurses, physicians, and respiratory therapists to provide the care for these patients because we are, I think, entering a, a phase where machines may not be um, the main shortage that we're concerned about, but it's actually going to be the bedside nursing and critical care expertise that's going to be lacking. Yeah, on your shift uh, last night or this mor through this morning, um, I'm assuming you guys are full or close to full. Can you tell us about your current uh, census in your IC where you just worked? Yeah, so we, we have one code bed available 
um, for our inpatients. And there are multiple plans in terms of surge capacity. And so once we uh, kind of hit a certain number, then we're going to be opening up different units and the nurses and the kind of step-down units are going to be paired with the ICU nurses to try to provide that oversight if it comes to that point where we no longer have um, ICU trained nurses. So here we have folks who are on ECMO um, and so that's just basically lung bypass machine when somebody has very severe disease that you're not able to uh, treat through uh, just a ventilator alone. And so um, it's very labor intensive, um, requires expertise that our nurses have. Um, but uh, again, I, th I think right now we, we are not at uh, kind of that critical transition point yet. Um, and there's kind of plans in place to expand if necessary. But our kind of sister hospitals in the neighborhood closer to closer to the border, have lines of ambulances uh, lined up waiting for ICU beds. We accept patients from kind of from Riverside all the way down to uh, kind of East County. Um, so very large encatchment area of folks that we're bringing over to uh, the university. Yeah, I saw um, you're talking about San Diego, your sister hospitals, obviously you represent UCSD. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, I actually just read an article um, from the CEO of Scripps, which I'm sure you're familiar. His name is Chris Van Gorder. He's actually been on the show before. And one of the things he touches on is COVID fatigue and how he understands that the general public is tired of COVID fatigue. And he's tired, or I'm sorry, but the general public is tired of COVID. And um, yeah, so... Obviously, your your staff are tired. Why? Maybe like why should or someone who says, you know what, I sh I don't have to wear a mask. It's my body. Let me do what I want. How would you respond uh, to somebody who who says that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think early on there was a lot of um, kind of discussion and debate about whether you know wearing a mask does wearing a mask increase your risk of having more severe disease? Is it really protecting you? And I think by and large, that was that debate was over by April. <laughs> and so um, I think anyone who's saying that since then, I think is, um, you know, I, I, I think there's always going to be a balance of kind of an individual's rights um, against the community's well-being. And so the fact that someone is willing to take on the responsibility and risk of they themselves getting infected is very different in the case of a transmissible disease. And so the fact that this is airborne, if you're in an environment where there's poor circulation, no one is wearing masks and you have one person infected, this is a highly contagious pathogen. And so what I would say is, you know, there was a great case series actually out of Maine um, that was published by the CDC um, back in May, I believe. And they basically had a, a wedding <laughs> where 55 people were in attendance. One person was infected. And from that kind of wedding, I think over 170 people ultimately were infected. Seven of those 
went to the hospital and another seven died. And those 14 people didn't attend the wedding. And so when people make a decision to go to an enclosed environment, not use masks and have a poorly ventilated area, there's going to be a huge risk of transmitting that to people who have nothing to do with you taking on that responsibility. So that's kind of the community side that I could speak to. But then me as a critical care physician, um, if you get sick and you need a tube to help you breathe, I would be putting that tube in and exposing myself to that risk. And so it's very different from something like HIV, for instance, if somebody says, you know, I'm going to get this infection with my habits, but ultimately, and and you may pass that on to several people. So it's, you know, HIV is the biggest pandemic that we've had in our kind of modern history, but the way in which coronavirus is transmitted is exponentially more contagious um, and carries, again, I think the question is, um, when people say they can't breathe with a mask on <laughs> to go to a supermarket, I will say I've had it on for 24 hours and we are not, <laughs> um, you know, suffocating as a result. And so I, I would just encourage people, you know, everybody has their right to kind of decide what's best for them. But I think need to recognize that this is a very different experience than anything else that we think of kind of individual liberties, I think stop in this situation where you're putting someone else's health at risk that has nothing to do with the risk you're willing to assume. I I think the kind of drunk driving example is a good uh, picture of kind of like, well, I'm willing to take on the risk of drinking and driving, um, but ultimately you could end up killing somebody else. And so I think that's you know, we have laws in place for that. And so I think while we have this pandemic, it, you know, mandatory masks within closed places um, is just something that you do be out of caring for those people around you, basically. Okay, so Dr. Akrami, uh, as we're recording this at the end of the year, the vaccine is out. Um, we have the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. And one, one of the terms that's thrown out there is this whole 95% efficacy term. And that term does not necessarily mean 19 out of 20 shots works. Can you explain what 95% efficacy means in layman's terms? Sure. So um, basically the way that these numbers are arrived at is you have one group of people who get the vaccine and another group that gets placebo. And because we've done kind of internationally such a poor job of controlling this virus, there are lots of cases of infection. And so one of the reasons that this was able to be done so quickly is because it's different from other kind of vaccine trials that take a much longer time to see incident case rates. And so if you basically, um, you have one group of people who got the vaccine who were not infected, and then you had another group that got placebo who was infected. And based on those numbers, that 95% refers to the fact that by taking the full course of the vaccine, so the initial and booster doses, your chance of infection is reduced by, you are 95% less likely to be infected compared to 
somebody who didn't receive the vaccine, so the placebo group um, in the clinical trial. And that was for both, pretty much both the Moderna and Pfizer. Exactly. Uh, I know AstraZeneca is trying to come out uh, with something by early 2021, so we'll see about that. Now, one thing as well that's different about the vaccine is the whole mRNA uh, way of developing it. Uh, can you share a little bit about mRNA and how that's different? Yeah, so, you know, traditionally we, we have either uh, live attenuated or kind of like weaker live uh, viruses that would be injected. So smallpox or measles, mumps, and rubella are kind of the prototypes for that. Um, and then we have others that basically we stick a protein on uh, a, a dead virus um, backbone, basically, and inject that and try to trigger an immune response. Um, this kind of shortcuts that process in that instead of injecting the protein, we're injecting kind of the script to make that protein. And so um, the same result ends up in that parts of the, the mRNA gets into the cell, your cells start to produce the protein, express that on their cell surfaces and activate the immune response. And so um, really there's nothing kind of too novel other than that it's a very quick way to make a virus that doesn't depend on um, basically egg-based products that has a very long latency time for the traditional vaccines. And so uh, really you're, you're basically short, uh, taking a shortcut from having the virus be taken up by the cell, protein broken down and then expressed, you're actually just saying, my immune cells, you're going to take up the mRNA because it's foreign in the body. mRNA floating around in the bloodstream automatically is taken up by our immune cells. And eventually that mRNA is going to produce a protein within the cell that will express on its surface to announce we have something in the body that's not us. We need to react against it. And so that's the way that we generate an effective immune response. So Dr. Akrami, as we get to the close of today's show, I want to ask you, what would you say is the hardest part or the most challenging uh, part of serving on the front line during the pandemic? I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's twofold at this point. Um, the initial uh, stress of having patients come in that are uh, unable to be surrounded by their family. Um, you know, in Brazil, that is a huge part of in the hospital, you always have some family member that's with you um, basically 24 seven. And I think that was something that was very hard um, to kind of witness. And then also when we had patients who didn't make it, um, they essentially, um, you know, were surrounded by strangers who were taking care of them in, in the last moments of their lives. And so I think that created a, a, a lot of emotional turmoil for both the staff, but also the family members who, you know, their last moments with their loved ones would be through an iPhone or, or, or an iPad. Um, and, uh, that I think has been something that's been, you know, vocalized a lot. And I, I think it's very different than how we are able to generally provide end of life care for patients um, 
that, you know, the way that we envision a good death, um, I think is something where um, even though we're able to provide, you know, comfort from the staff, um, the fact that the family is unable to be in the room um, with their loved ones for however long they have um, has really been devastating. And we've also had cases where entire families have been essentially devastated where um, I can think of numerous examples, but one in particular where uh, a wife lost her husband, her brother, sister, daughter, and son, and she was the sole survivor um, of coronavirus infection. And so I think that's been just seeing those, um, uh, the lack of um, what we're accustomed to at the, at the end of life to be surrounded by family and feel that proximity. And then also I think within medicine, we tend to have to have a certain amount of emotional distance just to maintain our own sense of well-being. And I think that's been eroded because ultimately we are then called on to be in the room with the patients in those last moments and provide some, semblance of familiarity and and comfort to them that their family would have otherwise been providing. Yeah, that's, uh, I appreciate your transparency and vulnerability there, Dr. Kramy. And, uh, you know, hopefully that you mentioned that the distance, the emotional distance that you're professionally supposed to keep uh, has been eroded and that's reasonable. Um, But I'm hopeful that your staff um, can provide some comfort and Maybe let's jump into what, what what are some of the positives or like what's something, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, you look back and be like, hey, man, this was one of the benefits of serving during this time. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's it's interesting, the resiliency of the, um, the human spirit, so to speak. I, I know that might be a little... Um, kind of commonplace, but I, th- I think both in terms of what I've seen, um, you know, uh, our staff in San Diego, in Brazil, have gone above and beyond what they are, um, what they thought they were capable of doing. And I think, you know, that that has been something that has been really awe-inspiring to see people um, really sacrifice um, and essentially responded to the call to arms uh, against this virus and were willing to not only kind of push themselves physically, emotionally, and put themselves in harm's way, um, but uh, have have done it in a way that has still aimed to maintain compassion, even in the midst of a lot of tragedy and and sadness. Um, And so I think the resiliency of um, the, the the medical teams in these very disparate environments has kind of pointed to this common um, goal, I think, in, in healthcare specifically of trying to provide um, what you can and then pushing your limits to then go above and beyond what you thought you were capable of. So I, I think, you know, that's probably looking back will be something that I, I, I will definitely take with me. That is, that's a great, uh, a great story and an example of the positives. Um, you know, a lot of times, or for me, I see this as kind of a war or a battle and we have a common enemy, right? 
the common enemy is is COVID. And we see times in history where a common enemy can bring people together to do things that uh, were never uh, foreseen before. So um, that's, I think that's a great uh, uh, example that you shared. And that's what it reminds me of with, with the war. Um, let's end on a good note uh, here, and uh, which we are. Um, what's what's one of the cool things of living in Brazil? What do you what do you enjoy down there? Yeah, so I mentioned surfing. Obviously, it's kind yeah. of my uh, go to for uh, for restoring my 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 sense of well being. But um, specifically, where we live um, is in Salvador, um, in the state of Bahia, and uh, the food is amazing. Um, the uh, there's a Portuguese African influence, so it's the largest um, uh, uh, Brazilian city of African descent. So the the population reminds me a lot of Mozambique, um, and so the warmth of kind of the community there, and um, just the joyfulness in in life. And I, I think you know it's interesting brazil i think is the capital in the world of memes to kind of make light of very dark situations um, and use humor to really overcome a lot of um adversity and so that it's it's just been really um great living in a in an area that is um able to kind of embrace adversity in a way that's light-hearted um, and uh, there, there's kind of within our city, that's where capoeira originated. So that's kind ah. of the Brazilian martial arts. And so yeah. they, um, there's, if you watch that style of, of dance and, and, and martial arts, they, it's, it's very um, playful. And I think that playfulness is something that I had, hadn't anticipated and have really enjoyed um, within within our state in particular but you know overall and anywhere i've traveled in brazil there's this um sense of uh of joyfulness and playfulness and i, I think you, you know you and i played soccer forever and so the samba soccer is kind of a great example where there's just this little bit of showmanship and uh playfulness that um i think it, you know it encompasses a lot of the the lifestyle in in brazil that that's just incredible awesome well i have to say i haven't interacted with you much in our adult years but when i have um i'll call you kevin now to end the show um you have this joy about you and i hope you're able to bring it to san diego and i think you are uh, i haven't been on the front lines with you but i think that's a great testimony about the brazilian culture and, and the life that you're living um so again dr kevin akrami has been our guest uh Kevin, as I'll call him, an infectious disease expert serving on the front lines of COVID-19, just coming off a shift. And I think you're going to sleep, catch some Z's and going right back at it tonight, right? Yes. <laughs> well, yes. very grateful for your time, Dr. Akrami, and um, appreciate the show. Folks, really quickly, uh, getting folks on like Dr. Kevin Akrami uh, is not always an easy task. Luckily, he's one of my friend's little brothers, so maybe this was a little bit uh, of a connection there. But one of the reasons we're able to get folks like Dr. Cromie on the show is by you leaving a review. So I'd like to kindly ask, if you enjoy the show, please kindly leave a review for us on Apple Music or YouTube. That would mean a lot to me. And again, take care. Happy New Year. And here's to a great 2021. Thanks again, Dr. Cromie. Absolutely. Thanks.
Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.